Lord, we turn this time over to you. Lord, I want to ask that um, you will speak to people's hearts. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be the communicator this morning. I pray that you will move me out of the way. And Lord, I pray that you will guard me and render me silent in areas that are not from you. And Lord, in uh, areas that are from you, I pray that you will undo us and that you will rebuild us and recreate us in the image of Christ. I pray that we'll have an, a high view of Scripture this morning, a high view of the truth, ultimately a high view of what you have to say. Lord, I pray this morning for those who will be on the receiving end of um, hurt and even... Um, uh, surprise, um, possibly even being disturbed this morning. Lord, I pray that they will, um, they and even me, that we will look to you for understanding and that we'll trust in you and trust your design and we will learn to live by every word that comes from you and that we will put ourselves in subjection to that word, whatever, our, whatever the cost to our hopes and our desires and our plans and our comfort that your plan will be paramount. Lord, we pray also for um, our team in Kazakhstan right now, your team. Lord, we pray for their time in um, Almaty with Pravda and uh, the time that they've had in worship today already. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, it's a time of sweet fellowship where you have people from opposite sides of the globe that know you, that are in fellowship with each other and with you because of the finished work of Christ. Lord, I pray for their travel to Astana, that it would be safe, and pray that they will have an opportunity to see what you're doing in and through Jake and Stephanie. Lord, we pray for folks to come to know you, for people to see you as Christ, or see your son as, as the Christ, and see... Um, you by his finished work and place their faith and trust in Christ alone. Lord, we pray for the church there. We pray for a viable, multiplying, discipling, glorifying church. And whatever you need to do to Jake and Stephanie to work that, whatever you need to do to our team, to other believers in that area, Lord, we pray that there'll be available instruments, sharp and ready. Lastly, Lord, I want to pray this morning for the kids that are in this room with us. I pray that you will speak to their hearts in a way that this adult can't and pray that the truth will find purchase in their hearts and um, they'll have an opportunity to discuss some things with mom and dad and that maybe even they'll um, talk this afternoon this evening over lunch or dinner about things that they've heard and they'll wrestle with the truth together as a family Lord we love you so much we turn this time over to you fearfully we proceed into your word in Christ's name we pray Amen I'm fearful this morning because the Word does violence to me. It uh, harms me. It harms me this morning in just the delivery of it. I feel like I'm stepping into a minefield. And um, I'm made out of the same stuff you're made out of. I care about my reputation. I care what people think about me. And I realize that what people think about me has a lot to do with what they think about this church. And um, I care about those things. But ultimately, I care more about what this book says because I know it's the truth. 
And this morning I ask you, as, as I prayed, I ask you that possibly even as you're sitting there now to pray that the Lord will place you in subjection to the truth. That He will, by grace, put you in a place where you are available, where you're surrendered, where you're repentant in places where you possibly may need to be. And that the result of that, that God will be glorified because we have held Him and His Word in high regard. John chapter 11, starting in verse 44. <clears throat> the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. For those of you who haven't been here or those who've not been paying attention the last couple of months, we've been in this passage just bathing ourselves in this story of Lazarus being raised from death to life. And we recognize that it's an image of what happens to us when we are called from death to life through the work, the effectual call of Christ that calls us from death to life into salvation. And we've enjoyed the imagery of Lazarus, of him being sealed in a tomb, unable to do anything about his situation, even being smelly because he's decomposing. We've enjoyed the imagery of that. And now we're moving on, but just for the sake of context, we've captured that last verse in verse 44. And in verse 45, Therefore, as a result of Lazarus being raised from death to life after being dead four days, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, because Jesus had raised Lazarus from death to life, and because many believed in him, and because some of these guys came and told on him, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Don't miss the motive there. These guys are afraid of their place, their temple, and the practice, and the sacrificial system, and their standing in the temple as Pharisees, and as Sadducees, and the high priests. They're afraid of losing all those things. Understand what their motive is. They are scared to death that Christ's presence will result in the Romans coming and taking away both our place and our nation. Understand their motive. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, Guys, you guys know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, John shifts into commenting on what Caiaphas has just said. John writes, Now, he, meaning Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, unbeknownst to him, unwittingly, he prophesies and testifies to the truth. He's ignorant to it, but yet he is communicating truth, that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad over space and time. That's you and me. We're in this story. That he may gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad over space and over time. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. <clears throat> as a pastor and as an elder in this community, it is part of my call to discern spiritual climate. 
Part of my role here as a pastor is to take a look at you. Well, first of all, take a look at myself, to be self-examined, to consider, is this word running me through? What does my journey of faith look like? That's one of my calls. Beyond that, my call is to discern a spiritual climate in our people, in our community, in the Greenville area, what it means to be a believer in this community. And then also consider what it means to be a believer even in the bigger context in our region, possibly even in the Bible Belt. And then to consider what it means to be a believer in North America and even beyond that to Kazakhstan, that blue flag back there where we've got people that are on the ground in Kazakhstan right now to consider the spiritual climate in Kazakhstan. Now here are the things that I am considering as I examine the spiritual climate I'm trying to discern what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now let me refine that a little bit. I'm trying to discern what it means to be a follower of Christ ideally, like from what this book has to say, and what it means to be a follower of Christ actually, where the rubber meets the road, where people are walking and talking and professing Christ. What does that Christianity look like? One of my calls is to discern if they reconcile, and if they don't. Here are my observations in Greenville and what I would call Bible Belt Church. I've developed what I'm calling the catalog of convenience. Let me qualify it before I proceed into the catalog of convenience. As you hear things in this catalog of convenience, they may feel a little bit personal. You may recall a conversation that you and I have had. I'm not picking on you. Okay, I want you to know that. I'm not going to name any names. (laughs) Uh, You may hear some things that we've talked about. In this catalog convenience, I want you to know more than anything, I've been able to build this thing from what I think and what I have said at different times over my journey of faith. So if anything, I'm picking on myself and examining myself more than I'm examining you. So don't take any of these things personally. Okay, catalog of convenience. First of all, within our catalog of convenience, we see church as a place, not a people. We see church as a thing that you go do rather than a people that you are. It's a thing that you practice on Sunday morning, and if you're really serious about it, Wednesday nights, rather than in reality a thing that we are. And in that context, Sunday morning church becomes everything. It becomes so much more important than it really should be. It's important. Don't hear me minimizing Sunday morning church, but it becomes everything because when it's confined to a place and in a time, then it becomes the church. So it's in that context that church has become a place where people must feel welcome. These are the things within this catalog of means. People must feel welcome. Bulletins must be easy to read. Chairs and pews must be comfortable, but not too comfortable. Music must not be too loud. And the songs must not be too long, because they don't want to stand too long. Services must not be too long. Lighting must be just right. Preachers must tell interesting stories. Signage must be easy to understand. Parking must be plentiful. Church activities must be... Um, must not be too early or too late. And during those church activities, 
child care must be provided. Preachers should not ever say anything that confuses or confounds. Really, an effective preacher in the eyes of many Christians. And I'm, listen, this is a caricature, but it's a fair caricature. I come in contact with people every day that think like this. Preachers, if they uh, or should not confuse and confound, what they should do is confirm what we already believe. Just reinforce what I've already been taught and maybe even say it better to where I have a better handle on it. But please don't confound or confuse. Our Christianity in this catalog of convenience must be safe. I listen to Christian music. I like Christian music. And I'm not picking on a Christian music station. But one of the Christian music stations in our area, here in the Dallas area, their call sign is safe for the whole family. Because we want Christianity to be safe. We even develop a Christian business guide called the Shepherd's Guide. Where we can even just do, do, do business with Christians, because then it's safe, and then we're all engaged with each other. We might even get a better deal, and it's surely going to be convenient because we're dealing with other Christians. We want tidy, sin-managed lives. And in general, this is in general, please, if this hurts your feelings, and you're like, man, it's just wrong, this guy's mean, this is my job of having my finger on the pulse of the spiritual climate. I'm not picking on you. In general, what I find is I contact, come in contact with people that profess Christ is that the mindset that I'm okay with church and with God as long as it's easy and convenient and safe and doesn't cramp me and what I'm about and what I want to do too much. If it is something to, I'm, that I'm going to be part of, or me as a pastor, something I'm, I'm going to offer, it must be expedient. It must be tidy. It must be safe. It must serve me, and it must stroke me, and it must make much of me. I want to remind you that I was able to build this catalog of convenience from myself and from where I've been and where I find myself frequently. I'm going to take you back to our passage in John chapter 11. Remember, this passage is about human sacrifice. I want you to get that. It's not very safe. It's not very efficient. It's not very tidy. It's not very expedient. This passage is about human sacrifice. These next few weeks, we're going to be climbing into this passage, specifically John chapter 11, verses 50 through 53. We're going to climb into what I'm just envisioning being a canyon of truth, bathing in this thing called atonement, and bathing in the picture that someone was substituted in our place and what that means. We're going to look at this passage through the lens of Leviticus, and we're going to understand that the sacrificial system ended in the finished work of Christ. Over a thousand years' worth of sacrifice where people that owned cattle and owned sheep, where they had to sacrifice the best one of their flock every day? That's a bummer when you're in an agrarian environment. Trust me. Imagine what that's like. You take the best of your crop and you sacrifice them every day, and this is finished in Christ. We're going to look through the lens of 
Leviticus and understand this passage. And then we're going to look back through the lens of Hebrews and we're going to understand how it was perfected, how it was finished, how the sacrifice, uh, the power and impact of that sacrifice. But today, today we're going to camp out on the lip of the canyon. We can't quite go into the canyon yet because I've been stuck on a word that I can't move beyond. It's the word expedient. Realize in this passage that I've just read, as John commented on it, that there's both prophecy and there's ignorance with the same words. Once you realize it's not a mixture of those things, both of them coexist. The prophecy is that the words are true, but the reality is that the guy that's speaking them is ignorant to the gravity of what he's truly saying. So, here in this passage, John comments that Caiaphas has spoken prophecy about Christ's death, but it's obvious that Caiaphas spoke true words in ignorance. The word translated here as expedient in my version. It's the New American Standard. I think the King James Version and the New King James also uses the word expedient. The NIV and the ESV says it is better that instead of expedient. Expedient is a good translation for what Caiaphas is saying. The word translated here, expedient, is the word that I've not been able to move past. It's the word that we will eat this morning. And we will ask God to show us what it means in ignorance to handle Christ. And on the flip side, we will ask Him to show us what it means truthfully to be handled by Christ. First of all, the word in ignorance. The word in the original language is the word sumferi. I don't know that any of you really care about that, but I just want you to know that I have studied this word. I know what the word is. I've studied a little bit of Greek, so I'm able to get acquainted with the Greek. And the word means sumferi. I want to consider the word in ignorance as it's used here in John chapter 11, verse 50. From the mouth of Caiaphas. I've tried desperately these last few weeks to get into the mind of Caiaphas. Now, we have to make some assumptions. We have to try and expect and try and imagine what he must have been thinking as he's considering this carpenter who's taking his world and turning it upside down, where hordes of people are following after him, and he's the high priest and a Sadducee. I've tried to climb into Caiaphas' mindset, and here's where I land. I'm imagining that he must have thought... The death of this Jesus may be necessary so that life as I know it continues unhindered. I've imagined that he must have thought, I don't want this Jesus to effectually, by his work and his message, lead to the removal of my place and my nation and my state and my rights and my pleasures and my station and my life after all it's mine I've tried to imagine Caiaphas mindset to consider if I have anything in common with Caiaphas you ever do that when you read a word you ever read about a loser and you go wait a second if I'm going to be obedient I'm going to climb in there and go do I have anything in common with this guy And that's what I've done with Caiaphas. Rather than dismiss him and say, oh, what a loser, man. I said, okay, let me climb into there and let me think what my life would be like 
were I the high priest and a Sadducee and Jesus shows up, I would be hacked. Here's where, if you could bold a sentence of this message to understand where we're going with this message, here's the sentence that I would encourage you to bold. As a result of trying to climb in Caiaphas' context, I see a guy who handles Christ. I see a guy who handles Christ with convenience and expediency. Now, the thing that rocked my world, the thing that makes me so scared to preach this morning, the reason I've been sick to my stomach all morning, the reason I was just hoping I might get hit by a car before 11.30 this morning, is that this sounds so much to me like our convenience catalog. It sounds so much to me like the Christian common testimony, the expedient Christianity. He died so that I may continue on with life as I know it, but a little bit better. I may continue on with with life as I know it, but that sin may be managed, my life may be a little bit more tidy, and that all I have to do is pray this prayer. I cannot tell you how often I hear the phrase as I'm talking with other people that have friends or family members that use the phrase, at least he's saved. Oftentimes we're speaking of someone that has neglected the bride that Christ came and died for, which most of Greenville has done. Realize that. There are 98 Christian churches, at least three years ago when I counted, on the Chamber of Commerce website. 98 Christian churches in the Greenville area serving 100,000 people with about 3 to 5% of people involved in a local body. If you're good at math, and you don't even have to be good at math, I'll help you with it. That's about 3 to 5% of people in the smack dab in the middle of the Bible Belt that are involved in the bride that God sent His Son, the Father sent His Son, to die for. That rocks my world. Most of the people we come in contact with, we could say, well, at least He's saved, because most of those people have had some sort of experience. Most of those people can tell you a date, place, time, and hour where they've walked down an aisle and they've got their baptism on and they prayed a prayer. And I don't want to discount that, but that's not the faith. That may be a very real genesis of the faith, but that's not the faith. Most of Greenville thinks they're square with God because they've done that. And that mindset points to the reality that there are crowds of professing believers that think they're saved because they prayed a convenient prayer in an expedient hour-long revival or maybe a 30-minute message and got their profitable, beneficial, non-hell policy on. They purchased their policy and it was easy and we can handle Christ in that context. On Wednesday nights, we're studying Revelation and the thing that we've learned about Satan in our study of Revelation is that he does not work by overpowering Christians. He works by deception. He takes the truth, and then he twists it, and he puts a little shade on it, and then before long, the truth is no longer the truth, but it seems close enough. And most of the people that I come in contact with that profess Christ in this community that have thumbed their nose at the bride, I just get a sense that their testimony has Satan's fingerprints all over it. 
I believe Satan's fingerprints are all over this mindset about convenient, handling Christ sort of Christianity. This mindset has created a sort of non-invasive faith, if there is such a thing. This mindset has created a benign church. A benign church. An impotent, pitiful church. This mindset has created a a low-impact Christianity. I'm okay with you, Jesus, as long as you don't cramp my place or my nation. As long as you don't do any damage to my station, I'll handle you. That's sumferi in ignorance. Now, let's look at sumferi in truth. There are only six other uses of the word in the Gospels. Six other uses. So it's not a real common word. One of those uses is where John refers to what Caiaphas has said later in John chapter 18. He says, remember Caiaphas, the guy that said that it would be expedient that this one man die for the nation? So that's one of the uses. Then there's five other uses. Four of them are used by Christ. And one of them is used by the disciples. What I would like to do is consider these other uses of this word to consider how we can understand what's better in God's eyes. That we can look through the lens of truth from the mouth of our Lord and the mouth of the disciples and consider what a better Christianity looks like. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm hoping that these next five verses that we look at will help us understand better the true character of this sacrifice that we're about to climb into over the next few weeks. This human sacrifice. Do y'all realize that's what we're talking about this morning? Sometimes it grips me to think that we're sitting and we're gathering on a Sunday morning in complete safety and we're talking about a human sacrifice and that we could be nonchalant about it. We're talking about human sacrifice. Sacrifice. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. I'm not going to read all of it. I just want to give you a context. This is the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to understand the audience. Christ is preaching, teaching his disciples. It begins right there in verse 1. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And in verse 2, he opened his mouth and began teaching them. He's speaking to his followers. We know that for sure in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He's speaking to the followers. He's speaking to believers. Verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in verse 16. And then again to believers in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, These guys would have heard that. They would have been familiar with that. And then here Christ raises the bar. Just in, just in case they thought they were okay next to the Ten Commandments, he raises the bar in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now verse 29 is the first use of that word. Through the mouth of truth, through the lens of truth, realize that what we've looked at over there in John chapter 11 is a mixture of truth 
spoken by a man in ignorance. We want to get in on the truth direction of this word. Here's the first use of this word in the Gospels. Verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better. That's the first use of the word. It means advantageous and profitable in the original language. Sumferi. It is sumferi. It is better for you. It is advantageous and profitable for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's the first use. Here's the second use in the next verse. Verse 30. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you for it is sumfero. It is better. It is profitable. It is advantageous for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So if we really want to get at truth and understand what this word means, we're hearing it from the mouth of the truth speaker, from truth himself, and he says it's better. I'll tell you what's better in regards to Christianity. It's better to lose an eye than to sin against a holy God. It's better to lose a hand than to defy God. Assume Pharaoh in truth isn't about convenience and expediency, at least not so far, is it? Is it very convenient to lose an eye? Very expedient to lose a hand? It's about losing body parts rather than sin against a holy God. There's nothing convenient about it at all. It's not about tidy, sin-managed lives. It's about sin assassination. That's what the true faith is about. If we want to understand a word in truth, soon Pharaoh, as a character of the faith, it's about sin assassination. It's not about tolerating it in us. Let's look at the next use, Matthew chapter 18. This is the third use of five. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to begin in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, you can imagine him putting his hand on this kid's head. I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. He says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, like this little guy, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child, a really humble person that's humbled himself like a little child, in my name, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little, little ones, these humble types who believe in me to stumble, it would be better. It would be more advantageous and profitable for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It would be better to drown in the deepest ocean with an express ticket to the bottom than to cause another to stumble. Again, here's the third use of the word in the Gospels. And Christ's use of the word, again, has to do with great difficulty in the journey of, the faith, journey of faith. It's not about expediency. It's not about convenience. It's not about ease. It's not about tidy and safe. It's about dangerous 
It's about being careful, very careful about how we engage other believers. That's better. Being careful about how we engage other believers is better. It's soon pharaoh than fighting for whatever pet habit you've got. But I can tell you it's expensive and it will cost you and it's surely not convenient. Matthew chapter 19 is the next use. This is the fourth use. This is the one that breaks my heart more than any. And it's so dangerous. Job security is not something that I really worry about. I care about people, though. And I care about how things hit people. And I have trembled over the treatment of these next few words. Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Let's, let's see where Christ takes it. And he answered that and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He goes back to the very beginning. Let's go back and see what the designer of marriage has to say. These, these um, Pharisees are trying to trip him up and trying to test him. He says, let's go back to the very beginning. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Christ just communicated such a high standard for marriage. These guys are asking him when it's grounds for marriage, and essentially he's saying never. Never? I'll tell you why he's saying never. What's grounds for marriage is he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. What are some of the things that God does? God creates life. When little Piper Sturgeon was born this week, who created that life? We know exactly who created that life. She was knitted together in the womb. God made life, and that's why we shouldn't mess with it. That's why we shouldn't tamper with it. That's why assisted suicide is unacceptable. It's his role. He creates life, and he's the one that takes it, too. The thing that we don't realize about marriage is we think that we found our spouse. And the reality is that God brought you together. What God joined together, let no man separate. That's what happens when we divorce. We get in the way of something God did. I won't equate it with murder, but it sounds to me like Christ has a super high view of marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So then they respond, wow. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. That's not their original design. That's not God's plan for marriage. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. That's an easy one for us, and we can climb all over that. The most time the problem is the folks that want to talk about divorce have not even had to deal with that. It's just, man, this is not working out. I'm not happy. We can't reconcile. Things are not good. I can't spend the rest of my life in this place. Certainly, God doesn't want me to be unhappy for the rest of my life. 
But this thing that may even may seem like an exception clause may not even be an exception clause. He might be saying that except in cases of immorality where the wife makes herself an adulterer, you make her an adulterer by divorcing her. It may not even be an exception. Whatever it is, we have 2,000 years and some language obstacles between here and there to truly understand this. In verse 10, here's the point, though. The disciples get it. And here's the fourth use of that word, that big, rich word. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better. It is advantageous. It is uh, profitable not to marry. Whoa. Yikes. That's what they said. It's, it, it, put it in B, Ben International Version. They said, yikes. Maybe we shouldn't get married. That's a high view of marriage. God, Jesus, God the Son. That's a super high view of marriage. Maybe we shouldn't get, get married. Because if, if that's something that God puts together, maybe we shouldn't be part of that for fear that we may tamper with it and break it apart. This is such a hard one for me because I believe at Crosspoint, I feel like we stand shoulder deep in the fruit falling from the tree of marriages that are in this body that of marriages of folks that have been previously married and have gone through divorce and been remarried. Anecdotally, it's a no-brainer. But we're not taught, we're not called to treat the Scriptures anecdotally. We're called to understand what it says and to believe it and do it, whatever it says. This is a hard one because it's so personal. I really feel like my best friends are either going through divorce or have gone through divorce and been remarried. And there's the potential to condemn all remarriages right here in this, this minefield that I feel like I'm already in. That's not my intent. My intent was just to look for the next use of the word sumphero, and here it is. It is better to not even get married. If divorced people or previously divorced or those who have been remarried feel like you're being singled out, I want you to just realize what we've talked about already. We've talked about adultery and causing others to stumble. I believe, based on the description of both of those, that probably every young person or adult in this room has already been covered. So we're not picking on divorcees. We're just looking for the next treatment of the word, trying to understand that Christ has a very high view of marriage and that typically the mindset is, we're not going to submit to that high view because it may cramp our plans too much. Surely, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he had no real concept of how miserable I am right now. Certainly, he does not want me to continue on for the rest of my life unhappy. That's how we reconcile. That's how we rationalize it. Surely, God doesn't want me to be alone. And certainly, he does not expect me to reconcile with that bonehead surely he doesn't expect me to reconcile with that woman but the disciples nailed it when they said it is soon pharaoh to remain single it is soon pharaoh to remain single rather than practice a lower view of marriage than the one who created it it is soon pharaoh it's better to remain single than to practice a lower view of marriage than the one who created it and even the one who created your marriage. Remember, he joined you together.
It is better, but it's sure not convenient, is it? The next passage is in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Verse 7. Christ is sharing that he will die. He's sharing with his followers that he's going away. And in verse 7 he says, I tell you the truth. It is soon Pharaoh that I go away. It is to your advantage that I die on a cross. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The last occasion in the Gospels where this word is used that Caiaphas used so ignorantly that we have the opportunity to understand truthfully, the last use of it is in regards to his own death. It is profitable and advantageous that he die so that the comforter who testifies to him and who seals our salvation may come. It is better for the Christ to die so that we may live. The uses of these words, these last five words that we've looked at that do such violence to us if we'll surrender and submit to them, the uses of these words are more in keeping with the true faith. Pharaoh in truth is expensive. It is costly. It undoes us. We don't handle it. It handles us. You understand the direction on that. You understand the treatment of that. He demonstrated it himself in John 11, verse 50, as he surrendered to a cross, as he was handled by his father's wrath. It's advantageous for us in that his death was in our place, and it's beyond profitable and advantageous it's priceless that he achieved what we couldn't a final lasting sufficient sacrifice that satisfied over a thousand years worth of temple sacrifice and rendered the whole system unnecessary it was indeed sumfero but it was expensive it was far from convenient It's far from expedient. The Christian faith is far more radical and dangerous than we realize. It is far more expensive than we consider. God's view of what is better is a violent, eye-gouging, arm-hacking pursuit of holiness. God's view of what is better is an intense awareness of other people's journey of faith and how our journey of faith impacts theirs. God's view of what is better means adopting and abiding by His view of marriage, not ours and not what we think would be best, but what He says is best. Whatever harm it does to our pleasures, our desires, our hopes, and even our reputation. It means our death with Christ 
so that we may live. I want you, as we end this morning, to consider your journey of faith. Is it a survival animal faith? Is it a survival animal faith or is it a Christian club driven by convenience? Driven by what works for you and what you like. Is your journey characterized by what Christ considers profitable and advantageous or by what Caiaphas considers convenient and expedient? Are you handling Christ or is he handling you? close with a quote from a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. I've shared this quote before, and it's one that I keep on my wall in my office because it's one that reminds me of what we're really called to and how dangerous this journey of faith is and how, how even harmful it is to me to preach, to my reputation and what people think of me, and possibly even Crosspoint, how dangerous it is to preach and believe the truth, whatever violence it does to what people think of you. This is the quote. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be able to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything, listen, except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. He goes on to say, herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. He's addressing, this was in a book called Kill the Commentators, which says a lot. Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. To ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. It's as dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Let's pray. Lord, as I stand here on the, the uh, wake of this message, I uh, ask you to do what I can't do. I ask you to take the truth and give it purchase in people's hearts. And I also ask you, Lord, to guard people's hearts from thinking this is unloving. Lord, I ask you to create in people something that I can't create is a appreciation and appreciation for what you have to say and what your plans and what your design is and what you think is better. Lord, I pray that you'll take what seems like a um, kind of a difficult message to understand, difficult message to preach, and you will just use that somehow. And you'll create in us an urgent, handled people. We are handled by the Holy Spirit, that we are undone by the Holy Spirit, that what this book says we believe and we will do. 
Lord, I pray as a result that you'll find a people that are all there. Not a people that are basing what we do, what we say, how we practice on convenience, but whose lives are truly sacrificial. They're truly offered up and available. Lord, I pray that, that begin with me. If there's anything in me that needs reconciliation with you, if there's anything in me that's based on convenience, any belief, any pursuit of you that's based on convenience or expediency, I ask your forgiveness and I pray that you will remove that. Lord, give us an urgency. An urgency that brings glory to you. An urgency that's a sweet aroma to some, recognizing that it's going to be a smell of death to others. Lord, we love you with everything in us. Whatever's not available, pray that you'll liberate by faith so that we can be all there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.